Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Self Care Community Podcast. I am Ruth Ann Russo, your host. Our self care community theme today is about individuals with addictions. According to the Surgeon General, one in seven people in the U.S. face a substance addiction, and only one in 10 of those actually receive treatment. My guest today, I'm very happy to announce, is Alexis Blount. Alexis is a very dear friend of mine. She's also a colleague and a health educator at UC Davis. Alexis is a nurse practitioner, and she has worked with individuals with addictions for how, how long? Alexis, I know it's been a long time. Would you like to share about that? It's been off and on for 35 years. Okay, yeah. so, so that qualifies for like expert plus. <laughs> So, and also I'm excited about the fact that Alexis recently completed her doctoral research and that involved an evaluation of an integrated care opioid treatment program. Alexis and I have worked together in the areas of integrative medicine and self-care and we are both graduates of the doctoral program in mind-body medicine at Saybrook University. So officially, welcome Alexis. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here with Anne and um, great to share some information. Yes, I am very excited as well. So obviously this area of addictions is, it's broad, it's significant, it's one of our main health concerns here in the United States, right? So one of the questions I have, because going back 30, you said about 35 years or so, at some point in your career, you've been actually you know, reaching out, helping people with addictions, and then you began to study them. So can you talk to us about how you first became interested in studying and working with individuals with addictions? I could say it began with a personal interest. Both my grandfather and father were in active alcohol uh, addiction at one point in their lives, as well as many other members of my family and community growing up in a working class family in New York City. So my sister and I were the first in our family to go to school and I went to go to college and graduate and I went to nursing school. And I was drawn to do psychiatric nursing because I always preferred talking to patients over the technology or giving hands-on care of nursing. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I worked as a psychiatric nurse for seven years and during the course of returning to school, there was a class where um, a guest lecturer came who was an addiction counselor, and he talked about the wounded healer, quote unquote, how many people are drawn to the helping professions because of their own unhealed childhood wounds. And it kind of crystallized for me at that moment that I didn't want to continue working where I was uh, working. I think I was suffering some burnout or some compassion fatigue. And uh, I needed to, you know, reignite my own motivation to provide care. I decided to pursue a master's in public health because the idea of taking that broader picture of health really appealed to me. And I started working on an initiative to decrease readmissions in an urban hospital in a poor setting. And it will surprise no one today that the major reasons for readmission at this hospital were diabetes, congestive heart failure, asthma, COPD. Unfortunately, that was 1992 and not much has changed. But I started working in the fields of chronic disease management and um, went on to obtain my nurse practitioner 
then went back to school again for integrated medicine because I felt that that self-care piece was missing both from my knowledge, from my own practice, and um, the practice of just conventional medicine in general. And then also, again, from a personal level. I mean, I, I think that the personal engages so much for me with my profession because um, that's what, you know, sparks me. That's what ignites me. So my interest in addiction reemerged as I started working in an integrated care setting, treating a patients with addiction and mental illness, but from a slightly different perspective, I was working to improve health uh, outcomes as part of a health home initiative started by the state of Maryland. And that's a behavioral health home funded by the Affordable Care Act for patients who are receiving care for a serious mental illness or an opioid addiction. So that's kind of the long answer. <laughs> so I love a couple of things that I love about that. One is you said, you and your sister were the first in your uh, family to go to school, right? And mm -hmm. so not only did you to go to college, and not only did you go to college, you have two master's degrees and a doctorate. Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything? Is, no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's just a really great um, example of, you know, doing what you needed to do, and you were inspired and, and able to do that. And then when you talked about your own experience with your grandfather, and uh, was it your father, your grandfather? Mm -hmm. Right. So, my and my father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, it, it makes me wonder. Um, I don't know. I'm not familiar. You might be with the statistics on. You know, we we saw one in seven individuals have an addiction, but I wonder. It's probably everyone is touched by someone with an addiction. I, I, I mm -hmm. would add, right. I, I just basically yeah. I I definitely agree, and that not getting treatment really resonates for me because neither one of them was active in AA or got any mental health treatment. Um, they just kind of did it on their own and um, I'm sure they would have benefited from it if they had. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting point that you make about AA too because you know, that's, even though it's been successful for so many people, it's still sort of question marks around whether or not it qualifies as evidence-based medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, we, I mean, the program that you and I went through at Saybrook was driven initially by the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's model of group care, group treatment, and that was modeled after AA. Jim Gordon, actually, he was a, um, or is still a psychiatrist, right? And he focused on addictions initially. So that, that model of, you know, the AA model of group treatment, and it's essentially like I mean, I find myself these days, I'm attending meetings probably at least every week because I find them to be so helpful. And I walk out of there and I say, wow, this is like us treating each other and it can be so effective. And you, you did you see? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a community. And um, I mean, just the other day, I went to Firestone <laughs> to get my car oil changed. And the gentleman there, um, the store manager just started chatting with me he didn't know the work I did and he started telling me about his own recovery journey and uh, he's very active in 12-step uh, programs and how he's just practices gratitude every day when he thinks about how far he's come so that you know I told him about the work that I do and um, it has just I know that it doesn't qualify at this point necessarily as evidence-based but 
over the years, I've met so many people who have benefited from it. Not to say it's for everyone, but for sure, it is a community that is so vital um, to support each other. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, it is, it's one of those things when we look at um, integrative medicine, self-care, these kinds of things, it can, none of this can hurt you and it may help you. So to at least know it's an option is important, right, for everyone. Yes, so one of the, my roles now is I work in tobacco treatment. So I treat patients who have nicotine addiction and um, many of them are also in recovery from other addictions because actually, and they all tell me that giving up nicotine has been the hardest. They gave up alcohol, they gave up opioids, but the nicotine was the last one. And um, I recently had a patient and we do an eight uh, session group um, and she told me how she is in recovery from alcohol, but she never resonated with the AA model. Mm-hmm. And so one of her barriers to doing some of the things that we suggest she do because our program is behaviorally based um, was she felt it was kind of too much like AA and that type of program didn't resonate with her. And I said to her, well, you know, try it because you haven't tried this before. So, you know, what harm can it do to try? You might find, you know, it's successful. Yeah. And she's still there. It sounds like she's, yeah, she's still there. So, so far she's quit for a week. (laughs) And I think the other thing is just offering it as an invitation and people feeling like they're making the decision as opposed to having it forced on them. You know, it's, it's really their choice. And one of the things we have the um, patients do is write down their personal reasons for quitting and work with them throughout the program so they can connect with their own personal reasons. Not my doctor told me to quit smoking, but why do I want to quit smoking? Mm, right. And, and Alexis, the program that you use, is there a, a name or is it something that you could maybe share with our listeners in terms of, is it a branded type of thing or is it specific to your it, it is. It is a program that we developed at UC Davis, but it is based on the Mayo Clinic. Um, guidelines as well as the public health service. So it's a lot of the behavior changes that the Mayo Clinic teaches um, individuals who are treating people with nicotine addiction. Okay, cool, very cool. So, so now I, I do want to spend a little time on your on your research. Um, I know we won't be able to give it complete justice during the podcast, um, but I had the pleasure and the honor of actually being able to be a witness to Alexis's uh, dissertation defense. It, I think it was only like a month ago or so, right? Uh, yes, it, I'm still in the glow. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful, and it was many years of work and. Um, impact and i'm sure in that process you you really had a lot of positive um impact on many of of the people that you worked with including the patients so uh, again i how long was your dissertation itself probably over 100 pages it was about 110 117 pages of all that (laughs) can you maybe boil it down for our listeners uh, keeping in mind that many of them will be healthcare uh, leaders and health systems, what are two or three key points from your research that you'd like to share with our listeners? So my dissertation research was a case study of a medication-assisted opioid treatment program that's attempting to provide integrated care 
by having, in addition to medication-assisted therapy, mental health services, housing, as well as nurse case managers who um, connect patients to primary care. They do population health and they do transitional care support so the nurse case managers get alerts whenever their patients are in the emergency room in the hospital through Maryland's um, what they call CRISP, the Chesapeake Regional um, Information Systems Portal. And then they contact the patients to see, you know, what the issue is and try to help them. Um, so um, two or three key points. Um, I interviewed staff and clients to try to find out what are the biggest barriers to care. And just to give some background, you know, individuals with substance abuse and mental illness live um, on average 15 to 30 years less than the general population. They tend to have a lot of comorbid conditions, um, cardiac, cardiometabolic conditions such as diabetes, hypertension. And um, in 2014, 42.4% of 27.8 million hospital stays for a physical health problem had a co-occurring mental illness or substance abuse disorder, according to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And readmission rates for patients with substance abuse disorders range from 18 to 26%. So we can no longer treat addiction as if it's, this is a separate thing from the work that we do. Uh, it's the elephant in the room. Uh, patients have to have their addiction and mental health concerns addressed if we're going to make any impact on um, their physical health. So um, what I found that clients and staff identified is that there's a very steep hill for uh, clients going through recovery in order to re regain their health. As far as um, there's a lot of stigma mm. in the healthcare system against individuals who have um, mental illness or opioid use disorders, um, they have to learn how to negotiate a system that is still pretty fragmented. So they have to learn how to connect with a primary care provider, how not to rely on the emergency room for care and learn all the self-care uh, aspects of their conditions like diabetes and hypertension. They have to learn how to eat right and um, take their medications on time and prioritize their health in a way that they weren't able to when they were in active addiction. And the patients really appreciated the support that the program gave them in that and they really found it valuable. So from a healthcare systems perspective, um, I think we have to um, look at also how we train and retain staff because this was a big challenge for the program. And I think that there's an element, um, again, of that compassion fatigue and clinical burnout. So I think we're also challenged to figure out how do we train staff in this new integrated model and how do we keep them working and um, motivated and inspired to take care of patients. Yeah, so this this issue, thank you for that. And so this issue of burnout, you actually talked about that, and I, I wanted to bring it up when you first were introducing all of your experience. So you experienced it personally, then you see it with um, in your in your research. And as we all know, it's there is a, an awful lot of uh, research 
articles written out there about practitioner burnout, whether it's nurses, physicians, it's I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% of individuals who are in that role have reported feeling burnt out. So uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of self-care, just the general concept of that can be shared not just with patients, but also providers. Uh, but that'll be that'll be another podcast. We'll get to now. Uh, but so so really, uh, the the fact that p- these patients are feeling stigmatized by the system isn't that's an important piece of information. The fact that um, individuals were coming together with varied backgrounds to provide services to them was important. And then, did you were these individuals um, that you studied? in the opioid treatment program, was there any um, group-based treatment for them? Yeah, so um, one of the initiatives that the program was doing in the time that I was studying was trying to increase group participation because um, traditionally clients would get their medications and, and leave. And so the program started looking at group. They had always offered groups, but they started making it um, more incentives, so giving clients uh, things like lunch and little um, gift cards for, you know, and it's a nominal amount, like $5, um, to get them to participate. And then also um, adding a little bit of the stick to the carrot and stick approach is if clients had dirty urines, then they had to attend a certain amount of groups in order to stay in the program. And the clients really found the groups beneficial. The groups were an opportunity for them to connect with each other. Um, They they talked about the information they received in the groups, the health information, um, and just the sense of community that being in the group gave to them. Hmm. They also, the program has an affiliated community foundation that does volunteer work in the community and provides training for the clients through doing volunteer work. They do things like they adopted a park and um, the city planners came in and worked with the clients around the design of the park and improvements. So it really gave the clients a lot of real world experience in community advocacy in urban planning and um, they just enjoy the opportunity to give back. And they spoke about that often in my interviews with them, how much they appreciated their um, renewed relationships with their family. Some of them had gone back to work and how meaningful it was them to be able to work again and take care of their family. To have that, you know, role restored to them that they lost when they were in active addiction, when they were kind of ostracized by the family or they stayed away from their family and their community because they, you know, they didn't like how, what they were doing or how they felt. Mm-hmm. So, so it's that, that's actually beautiful, right? And, and it's, it's essentially what you're describing is what we would call whole person care. So, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's interesting because this is the first time I've actually heard a description. You know, we work with this model, the, the seven sources of health, right? So it starts out with life, you know, knowing and living your life purpose, then attending to your body, mind, um, your uh, emotions, and your creativity or spirituality, and also community and environment. So this is the first time that I've actually 
heard of a health system including that environmental piece in what you just mm -hmm. said they were working with the government and you know actually going out into the community so community and environment that is a, a really great example of that so thank you for that and um, you know well, just, just to piggyback on that for a second you know that Many of these clients coming from communities affected by urban blight, they have food deserts. So it's really important um, that we address that as well because it's hard to imagine healing taking place in this environment that is lacking these kind of support structures. And there's a lot of interesting research being done now on how the lack of green space or how urban blight impacts health as well. And so, would you, so the example that you shared with us, this was the health system that was actually um, footing the cost for whatever this, the program was around the environment the, uh, that you described. Yes, yeah, so they had. There's a larger umbrella organization, and underneath that organization is the for-profit medication-assisted treatment program. Um, and then there is this community foundation, which is funded by the umbrella, but is independent of the for-profit organization in that they take clients from other drug treatment programs as well, not just, you know, this one. Okay. So one of the things that we also see, or we're starting to see, I should say, is that up until now, most, and I don't have a number on this, a percentage, but but by far the great majority of especially inpatient rehab, drug and alcohol rehab providers have been independent of healthcare systems. Very few of any healthcare systems have had their own drug and alcohol rehab. Uh, so part of that is, you know, then they're separating themselves from individuals with these conditions, right? Because they're not treating them and they may or may not actually be offering outpatient programs. So I was excited actually to see a few months ago that uh, Northwell Health, the largest uh, provider, actually the largest healthcare provider in New York, in the New York state area, they've actually begun construction on an addiction rehab facility. So I'm hoping that that is uh, evidence of a trend, right? That hospitals and healthcare systems will actually be getting into this area because there's so much for them to offer. So based upon your, all of your experience that you have had and your research, is there any advice that you would give to health systems who might be looking to create, uh, a, like, like Northwell Health, for example, to actually create their own inpatient treatment center. Uh, and I would assume if they've got an inpatient treatment center, that would flow to an intensive outpatient uh, treatment and then other outpatient treatments. Anything that you would specifically recommend they make sure they do or focus on? Well, I think the way that a lot of healthcare systems are going now is to incorporate, uh, instead of having like, um, and it is important to have alcohol and drug rehabs, but it's also important to have some of those providers embedded in primary care teams and also to um, increase primary care providers' knowledge and skill for treating addiction because the reality is there's not going to be enough alcohol and addiction behavioral health providers to meet all the needs of the client. And again, it's going back to that separation um, that historically existed between mental and physical health providers and their training and, you know, um, closing that gap, uh, ending that separation. Um, 
So I recently went to a talk by the uh, present Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, and he has a personal as well as a professional interest in opioid addiction because sadly, his brother's in jail because as a result of an opioid addiction. And he talked about, you know, um, the cost of incarceration, you know, $200 a day as opposed to the cost of treatment. But he's advocating that all primary care providers, that all providers become buprenorphine certified so that they're able to treat patients in an outpatient primary care setting. And he says that in addition to being CPR certified, every provider should know how should know how to use Narcan or Naloxone and carry it with them as well. So he's really speaking to, again to that need to have increase in primary care provider skills. A lot of institutions are having, like at UC Davis, they have a provider in the emergency department who can initiate buprenorphine treatment. So, you know, it's expanding the model. So yes, it's important for healthcare systems to have substance abuse treatment programs, but also to bring those programs to where people are in the emergency department or in the primary care setting. Because, because of stigma, um, a lot of people are not going to go to an addiction um, outpatient program, but they would be willing to go see their primary care provider just as, just as most depression in this country is treated by primary care providers and not by psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. So we already have a model. I think also healthcare systems need to invest in um, the training and in um, what came back again and again for the staff and the clients that I interviewed was the importance of relationships and connection. So healthcare systems uh, have to become more community focused, have to focus on the relationships between patients and providers and then providers themselves um, uh, put an investment in self-care practices because I believe that it flows outward, you know. So we know that uh, providers who practice self-care are more likely to teach patients to practice self-care as well. So. I think that's important. So well said. And that you, you're, the perspective that you have just taken there is an essential one. And I'm really glad that you were able to kind of draw that circle to a close for us here with, uh, with those suggestions. And I think there will be some health systems who will probably uh, be acting consistently with what you've talked about. Really important stuff, Alexis. Thank you. Um, oh, you're welcome. Yeah, before we end, I do want to ask you um, if you could tell us what your own favorite self-care practice is. So I love mindfulness. I don't necessarily meditate every day. I, I'm just not that um, disciplined, but... I do take time during the day, especially when I start to feel my stress level um, increase, stop and take a few moments to breathe and to pay attention to my body. How, where in my body am I feeling the stress and focusing on those areas. Um, so relaxing my shoulders, taking a deep breath. And as I relax my body, then I find that my um, stress level starts to decrease. And uh, recently, I bought a hammock from my backyard, and I don't know why I waited so long. This thing is wonderful, and I just love to like lay and rock in my hammock and just 
pay attention to the sound of the wind or the birds or um, just take this that mini vacation. So yeah. reconnect. That's my favorite self care practice. It's beautiful, and you can do that anytime, right? And you live in sunny California, so yes, I'm <laughs> fortunate. The year, I'm jealous. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Alexis, and uh, for sharing your research and also your philosophy of treatment. And I'm sure that uh, what you provide us with will be really helpful to our listeners. Thanks again. And thank you for the opportunity to share with everyone.